Dr. Michael Roizen. Dr. Michael Roizen. You, the Owner's Manual Radio Show. You're listening to You, the Owner's Manual Radio Podcast on Radio MD, iHeart, or wherever you download us from. Thank you very much for doing that. This is the B segment. The Bs are always guests, and we have a great one, a returning guest today. Peter Pitts is the former FDA Associate Commissioner. We're going to talk about cigarettes and menthol cigarettes specifically. He supervised the FDA's Office of Public Affairs, the Office of Ombudsman, and the Office of Special Health Issues as well. We talked to him once before, a great segment we did with Uh, We were lucky enough to do with him 942B, which I guess is about two years ago. We talked in 2019, actually it was May of 2019, about the measles epidemic that was breaking out then. I guess that's three years ago, um, now that I think of it. So Peter, thanks very much for coming on. we are, as usual, sponsored by Life's First Naturals. You can go to their website, lifesfirstnaturals.com, and see the randomized double-blind trials that they have done with um, both True Biotics and Bovine Colostrum. So it has nothing to do with um, this talk on menthol cigarettes or this topic. Um, Peter, why is it taken so, first of all, thank you for coming on, and secondly, why is it taken so long to ban menthol and to ban cigarettes in general? Well, firstly, thank you for having me on again. Uh, this is a great topic. You know, a couple of years ago, uh, the FDA banned flavored cigarettes, but there was a carve-out for menthol cigarettes, and that was a mistake. There was a lot of pressure put on a lot of people by the uh, tobacco industry, and the FDA is finally regained its senses and decided to withdraw mentholated cigarettes from the market. I think that's exactly the right thing to do. Mentholated cigarettes are entryway cigarettes for new smokers. And 85% of African-Americans who smoke, smoke mentholated cigarettes. So this is a community that has already been hit hard by COVID-19. And this is an opportunity for all of us right now to recognize the need to quit smoking. It's a teaching moment. There are ways to quit smoking, not just for African-Americans and young people and people that, speak, that smoke methylated cigarettes, but for people that smoke any type of combustible cigarettes. So uh, let's get with the program and get it done, I say. Is it the external pressure that's kept cigarettes as a, um, if you will, a device or a, a habit that people have, and menthol specifically? In other words, you, you implied there was pressure put on um, to keep uh, menthol, even though flavored cigarettes were in general banned? Well, you know, if you ask me personally, you know, I think that cigarettes should not be allowed. But, you know, it becomes a question of uh, personal freedom and liberty. And it's, it's, it's a fine line that we walk. I think that the, the extra dangers of menthol cigarettes are, are clear. Uh, they're targeted at communities already at risk. And they've, they've got to go away. I think that if we want to have an honest national conversation about banning cigarettes altogether. We should do that. I think that right now we probably lose. But the, the public health benefit versus the need to protect personal liberties relative to mentholated cigarettes, I think, is pretty cut and dry. Now, um, I should tell people that um, you, have, you are a 
visiting professor at the University of Paris School of Medicine and president for the Center for Medicine in the Public Interest, as well as um, have a, as a former uh, associate commissioner of the FDA. So have an extreme uh, sense of knowledge in this area. The Why did cigarettes ever get allowed in the first place? Is this just a historic accident that cigarettes were allowed and consequently couldn't be banned? Well, lots of things existed before the FDA and uh, don't exist anymore, like, for example, cocaine and Coca-Cola or heroin. You know, the FDA right now simply does not have the, the, uh, the legal authority to ban tobacco. That's not within their remit. And if Congress wants to change that, I'd be the first person to say, let's get it done. And um, the there must be some other interesting items that you'd like to get done. Um, we should also say that you are the associate editor of Therapeutic Innovation and Regulatory Science, which is the official um, DIA journal. Um, and uh, I, as I remember it, um, way back when, you also had written uh, uh, several books in the area of regulatory science. Is that right? That's right. In fact, I have a new book out. It's called The Next Normal. And the gist of the book is to recognize all the things we learned from the COVID-19 pandemic and try to apply them against other health-related issues. I think the key measure there is when we all pull together in the same direction, the whole healthcare ecosystem pharmaceutical companies and government and academia and doctors, patients, pharmacists, nurses, when we all put our brains together to accomplish one important thing, we can get it done. We um, can get so it's called the next normal. Continuing to slog forward. Um, in the next normal, um, what, what do you expect to happen from the standpoint of regulatory affairs? Will we, in other words, the, the FDA has had a lot of expedited reviews in this period. Will we still have that, or, or what have we learned a lot from the regulatory framework? Well, obviously, emergency use authorizations, which are how uh, the three vaccines that we have now initially got introduced into the marketplace, as well as some of the therapeutics and a lot of the uh, diagnostics, uh, are not meant for normal times. You know, an emergency, not everything can be an emergency. But what we have learned is that there, is, there are new ways to collect and analyze data uh, beyond only using the, the gold standard of a double-blind clinical study. There are different ways to get it done. We can look at real-world evidence. We can look at conditional approvals moving forward. And the, the, the Internet and the artificial intelligence tools gives us access to so much more real-time information that we can make sure drugs are performing the way that they're supposed to in, in, the, in, the, in the real world as opposed to waiting for people to suffer um, unnecessary consequences. And so do, do you expect this to... No, let me give a, an example. Um, the Cleveland Clinic Basic Science Group looked at all the quaternary structures of all the drugs that the FDA had approved and which blocked amyloid attachment to neurons and found 16 of the already approved drugs did that. They then went and looked at a database of uh, 15 million people and found that those on two of those drugs, 
um, had a much lower, 63% lower incidence uh, and in one case and, and 42% in the other case, lower incidence of um, Alzheimer's disease than would be expected for their age or were typical of people not on those drugs. And those drugs are now being tested for this process for do they actually block um, or can they be preventive against um, mental dysfunction? Um, should we be, uh, is, is, how does that, how will that um, speed development, do you think? Well, I think that's exactly right. When you take those types of meta-analyses and you allow artificial intelligence and machine learning to do the work that humans can't, uh, we can accomplish things much quicker. You know, I mean, if we don't address Alzheimer's disease quickly, it's going to bury us financially. The economic burdens of Alzheimer's disease is growing, and it's, it's, it's enormous. And, of course, we want new molecules, but we also have to understand that there are existing molecules out there, probably, that can be used against Alzheimer's disease. Unless we use technology to really do a deep dive into the data, we might never get there. So that's exactly right. This is the type of thing that uh, people need to work together with the academia and the FDA to make sure that this data does not go um, ignored. And um, as you said in, in your former book, I think we talked about, I think it was called Be Strategic or Die, was a book you had done before. Is that right? Yes, correct. And this is The New Normal. Um, both important books to understand what's happening in uh, the world that we're benefiting from uh, these learnings. Um, let's talk, a, can I come back and talk um, a little bit about menthol and how long do you expect, now the, the FDA comes out and says it wants to ban this. Is there, a, is there a comment period? How long does it take to get menthol cigarettes off the market and, and what do you expect to happen? in the interim? So the, the FDA has set forward a uh, proposed rule, and now the common period is going. It ends on July 5th, at which point I predict the lawsuits will start. I think that Big Tobacco is going to start suing the FDA and the government to prolong it. Uh, it could take a year or more. Uh, though Big Tobacco has a lot of allies, among them uh, Reverend Al Sharpton, believe it or not, who said that the rules should not happen. He's lobbying the president that the rules shouldn't, uh, should be withdrawn. Reverend Al says that if, uh, if you outlaw menthol cigarettes, only outlaws will have menthol cigarettes. You'll have a huge criminal black market. You know, the fact of the matter is uh, menthol cigarettes kill people, and, they, they, and they've got to come up the market. And whether it takes a year or whether it takes two years, we should start educating people right now at, to ways to quit smoking. And there are lots of good ways. You know, vaping, you can, va you can get vape menthol, and it's a great way to reduce your dependence. Uh, vaping is safer than smoking, but ultimately, we don't want people to move from smoking to vaping. We want people to move from smoking to vaping to not needing nicotine at all. But now, now is the time to start educating people as to how to quit smoking. It can't be said often enough. Well, it also will block new users in the minority community. I, since I think you said to me over 80% of cigarettes that are uh, that are used in the minority community in the, in the African American community are menthol cigarettes. So hopefully it would 85%, decrease. Eighty-five percent. Yeah. 
it would decrease uh, the death rate and the addiction rate to cigarettes in that community. And uh, I guess Reverend uh, Al Sharpton has to say that uh, um, that they will still get it from outlaws. I don't think as easily. Is that right. correct? And, you know, I, I, and of course, you know, Reverend Al uh, takes a lot of money from the from Big Tobacco. So I would challenge him to take every penny he gets from Big Tobacco and give it to programs that help uh, minority smokers quit the habit. We've been talking, and hopefully you've been listening, and even hopefully Reverend Al has been listening, to Peter Pitts, the president and co-founder of the Center for Medicine and the Public Interest, CMPI. He also serves as a visiting professor at the University of Paris School of Medicine and is the former associate commissioner of the FDA, um, who's got a new book out called The New Normal, What We've Really Learned from This Pandemic. Um, but one of the things hopefully we have learned is that banning um, and decreased cigarette smoking will help people not have a serious illness from pandemics like COVID-19. Thanks very much, Peter. And you can get The New Normal at Amazon.com. But thanks very much, Dr. Pitts, for appearing and for being um, on the show again. You can, by the way, find go back and listen to him on the measles podcast that we did that was 942B. Um, this has been You, the Owner's Manual, 1097B. The Bs are always... Great guests like Peter Pitts. Um, the A's are the latest medical news of the week and what it means to you. Thanks, Caitlin, for great engineering. Thanks, LifeFirstNaturals.com for being our continuing sponsor. But especially thank you for downloading us. You're what keep us doing this. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week.